What Jewish life feels like today as humans is not reflected by most of our Jewish institutions. And so this exhibition really takes a step in that direction by asking right up front, like who is included, who is not, who is visible, who is not. And I think we all feel that there is a different Jewish experience in the 21st century than what we can even understand from the 20th century. And it's headed in a direction that is like nothing our museums are accustomed to. Jewish life is gonna look and feel and present so differently in 50 years, it's gonna be astonishing. Welcome to Disloyal, a podcast from the Jewish Museum of Maryland. I'm your host, Mark Gunnery. Today on the show, we're continuing our series on offense around the Torah, our latest contemporary art exhibit. It explores how Jewish communities navigate the concepts of safety and unsafety in traditional, contemporary, and futuristic ways. I'm speaking with the artists and curators who made the exhibit possible. You can experience the art from this exhibit at offensearoundthetorah.com. And what you're hearing under me is a recording of a nigun. A nigun is a form of Jewish vocal music with roots in the Hasidic movement. This one is called Kol Bayar, which is Hebrew for a voice in the forest. It was recorded in the courtyard of the Jewish Museum of Maryland in November 2021 as part of a mixed media installation in a fence around the Torah titled We Would Come Home But You've Locked the Door by Daniel Turetsky. And today I'm speaking with Daniel Turetsky. Daniel Turetsky is an artist and architectural designer based in Brooklyn. He also plays trombone in the Hungry March Band and in Mrs. Turetsky's Nightmare. Daniel Turetsky, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here, Mark. I'm also joined by Melissa Martins Yeverbaum. She is the executive director of the Council of American Jewish Museums and was on the curatorial panel for Fence Around the Torah. She also used to work here at the Jewish Museum of Maryland from 1997 to 2007. Melissa Martins Yeverbaum, welcome to Disloyal. Hi, it's great to be back with you all. Daniel Turetsky, I want to start with you. Can you give our listeners a sense of your installation, We Would Come Home But You've Locked the Door, both the installation itself and the community process for putting it together? Sure. So the installation is in the courtyard of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. It's a really beautiful brick courtyard with these trees on one side that, you know, while there's only two trees, I think about it kind of like a forest and there's a big metal gate to get into the museum. The installation itself is kind of an altar and it's cloaked in in black mesh. And when you go around the altar, it's kind of mysterious from the outside, but you go around and there's some steps up to a little platform and you look through this window back at the gate. And when you're looking through the window, there are all of these yellow window panes that have been collaged in black vinyl by the community uh, around the Jewish Museum of Maryland. And and what they're collaged with is based on a prompt. Uh, And the prompt was to draw something in the background that is a a, a place where you feel at odds with your Jewishness and draw something in the foreground or a few things in the foreground that show ways that you have reconnected or ways that you feel closer 
to your Jewishness. And this perspective that we're setting up with the horizon in these images is based on a story from Joshua chapter 22, where this tribe leaves leaves Israel and goes across the Jordan and sets up an altar there. And the tribes that are back in Israel are really PO'd about this. And so they say, you know, you're not allowed to set up an altar outside the land of Israel. And the, the tribes that had crossed the Jordan answer back, well, we set up this this altar not in, not to make heretical sacrifices, but to remind our descendants that that they are, you know, the children of Israel or or or, or Jewish. When your descendants will inevitably deny that from them. So the perspective set up through this window is of looking back towards a place that has uh, is is somehow in conflict with our identity as as Jews. So Daniel, you've said that your artwork, quote, embraces Jewish cultural and religious rituals while interrogating structures of power within the Jewish diaspora, end quote. Can you speak a bit more about that effort and where this particular piece of art fits into it? Sure. I mean, I guess that's the aspiration uh, (laughs) is is to do that. Ever ever since I went to architecture school, there was a point where I had gone to Rome and I studied really so much spatial theory, but from a very Christian perspective. And um, and when I came back, I read this article about celebrating Tisha B'Av in Rome. And I was sort of, it sort of hit me that I had spent this whole semester in a really loaded place Jewishly, but never really considered like what the theories or the politics behind Jewish space were. And so that really started me on this quest of mining Jewish liturgy and Jewish history and Jewish folk narratives for architectural clues for, for what could be considered Jewish architecture. And so a lot of those things tend to be rituals like, you know, an Eruv or a Sukkah or a Chuppah or, I mean, those are kind of like literal, but also really phenomenal examples of these portable Jewish architectural rituals. And I, I think that those things have a history of subverting the power structures that they are built in. They're often built in societies where where there's a different power structure that is at odds with with Jewishness or with Jewish spirituality in some way. And and these things kind of make Jewish space in the space of others. Um, And they do so in, I think, subversive, but also very like non-permanent and non-violent means. And so I'm really interested in how these traditions of Jewish space making can be mechanisms to make the kinds of Jewish spaces that I want to see, which are nonviolent and non-colonizing and, and non-permanent, but still have a lot of meaning and bring community together. So that's, I think, what I'm getting at with this. So Melissa Martins, Yeverbaum, I want to turn to you. You wrote the curatorial statement for this piece where you called it, quote, an act of acceptance and defiance simultaneously, end quote. That idea, simultaneous acceptance and defiance, is really fascinating to me. Can you speak more about that, both in terms of Daniel Turetsky's piece and how it relates to this exhibit more generally? Yeah, I was really excited to think about this piece more deeply and and the place that it occupies on so many levels. As Daniel was talking about, I think one of the tensions within Judaism and within Jewish life is to what extent are we recognizing what's come before? To what extent are we accepting and being accepted? And to what extent are we defying the past and saying, you know what? 
we're, we're going to use our antenna. We're going to use our cultural navigation here, and we're going to try something different. And the very um, narrative that this piece conveys really looks at the consequences of trying to do Judaism and perform Judaism in a different way. And so I, I love that the piece in its physical presentation echoes traditional elements. It looks like an ark. It looks like it could be a sukkah or an outdoor Jewish structure. It reminds me of the Torah arcs inside the Lloyd Street Synagogue um, that's just to the north of the museum and where the, the piece is located. Um, it reminds me of the gorgeous Torah Ark wall inside B'nai Israel congregation, which is just to the south of the museum. So it's traditional in its initial impression. But as you start looking at the piece, you really realize the, the instances of rebellion. And as Daniel was talking about the different expressions and contribution of the community members that interacted with the piece, that talk about that insiderness and the push at the same time. Like Daniel said, this piece is displayed in the outdoor courtyard of the Jewish Museum of Maryland. Can you talk about how you see this piece as a physical introduction to the museum and the exhibit as a whole? And how does it welcome people while also addressing one of the exhibit's main themes, which is dissent? I love the location of this piece. Um, I've, I've known the museum campus since that courtyard was built in the 1990s. And I, I don't remember too many creative uses of it. And so the idea that this piece is the welcoming piece to not only the exhibit, but to the museum is super interesting. I mean, it's it's putting out there something that's very approachable, very physically and visually enticing. But at the same time, it's announcing literally on the museum's doorstep that we're gonna challenge some of your traditional ideas. And this is a, a big step for the museum, for the field of Jewish museums. It being there on the front, it's inviting, it invites participation, but it also says up the way in which the exhibit wants to tackle difficult issues and difficult questions. So I, I think its location is fantastic. I think the fact that it's participatory is great. I, I think it really speaks to the a lot of the themes in the in the exhibition and it serves as an intro to the museum. The piece itself is an altar, but it also makes me think of the museum as an altar in the urban forest that is Baltimore, that um, what are Jewish museums and museums if they're not altars to the past filled with objects um, and the artifacts that people hold, hold up? I remember there was a great art piece at the Jewish Museum of Prague a few decades ago by Melissa Schiff, and it was like an ark. And it was an arc with projections of the museum's collection on the outside. And this piece reminds me a lot of that. That was an internationally acclaimed piece. And it really kind of held up the idea of what will be held by the community and what will be put forward. And we as Jewish museums are the arcs that are gonna carry those objects into the future. So Daniel's piece is perfectly in dialogue with, with what a museum can do. I appreciate that, Melissa, thank you. Coming back to this idea of dissent, Daniel, I am wondering what dissent means for you and specifically how it relates to your art and the work of other Jewish artists, including the ones featured in Offense Around the Torah. Dissent is a really uh, tricky thing in the Jewish community because, I, well, I think it, it depends what we're being dissenting of. But I, I think 
a lot of the works in this exhibit that Leora put together understand descent through the lens of that which is at odds with the conservative mainstream. And I often see that through the funding structure of what gets funded. And it's uh, sort of, this is less put together for me because I'm still trying to figure out what this means. But I, I think I think a main thing is is how much support we give to Zionism uh, or, or or Palestinian liberation efforts. And when I think about dissent, I think about opening up space for a conversation that is critical of Zionism, and that's something that uh, is often blacklisted or uh, shut out of of mainstream Jewish spaces. So. What I'm also, I think, would like to be in dissent of, and I think this exhibit is, is not simply in dissent of, of, of some of these nationalist principles, but dissenting the, or, or, or rejecting the notion that those people who are challenging those principles are in some way not Jewish, uh, or in some way disloyal or, or bad Jews. And that is, I think, what enrages me more than anything, is, is that people would like that conversation to not even be within a Jewish space. So I would like to think that I'm helping a movement of dissent around excommunicating Jews who challenge conservative Jewish values. But I, I think that there are other um, pieces to that of, of dissenting conservative values that exclude queer voices and POC voices, especially when those voices are interested in demilitarizing or de-policifying like Jewish spaces that have oftentimes sought out relations to police power or civic power when it is detrimental to certain people in those communities. Right on. I'm just going to jump in. I I love what you're saying. And I think that that one of the things that Jewish museums are so wrestling with is in a way they're a reflection of mainstream Jewish institutional culture. They rely on a lot of the same philanthropic support. Now, some of them were born from federations. Some of them are born from synagogues. And all of that is also a desirable relationship because I feel like museums are alternative voices in partnership with a lot of those organizations. And a lot of them enjoy Um, a looser affiliation with formal Jewish community and sometimes no formal affiliation, but they are institutions. And as institutions to what, where are Jewish museums going to run new experiments in organized Jewish culture? And as you were talking, Daniel, I was so excited. I mean, imagining and remembering so many moments where I could go to holiday services with family and, you know, the, the experience was so buttoned up, even if the rabbi was really dynamic and somebody that I really respected. But then the conversations around the dinner table afterwards were the real conversations, right? And we can't, or I can't expect at this point, a synagogue experience to be a container for that cacophony just yet, because the, the systems aren't set up um, necessarily to allow that, allow that. But Jewish museums can do something really different, right? And part of what you've done with your piece is allow the the recording and the musical component, allow the participatory moment. And so it's museums and your artwork are kind of straddling 
Like what is the frame we expect? What is the container? And where is the conversation going to go on its own? And I think so much of what you're saying is that there is a real hunger for, we know that Jewish life is changing, but it doesn't seem to be presented, right? Like I even think about Brooklyn where you live and I think about the the wide range of Jewish experience in Brooklyn. And yet there's no museum, library, JCC, et cetera, that reflects the richness of the Jewish experience of Brooklyn as, as I experienced it living in your neighborhood. And I think it's such a shame. It's one of the most dynamic, exciting Jewish communities that I've ever lived in. And where is that dynamism presented? Nowhere. Not in the Jewish museums in Manhattan, not at the JCCs. I mean, it trickles What in. about the, the Brooklyn Children's Museum, the Brooklyn Jewish Children's Museum? <laughs> well, and, that, that's and a joke, also, that's a joke. No, but, uh, but I think one of the things that's totally at odds is that what Jewish life feels like today as humans is not reflected by most of our Jewish institutions. And so this exhibition really takes a step in that direction by asking right up front, like who is included, who is not, who is visible, who is not. And I think we all feel that there is a different Jewish experience in the 21st century than what we can even understand from the 20th century. And it's headed in a direction that is like nothing our museums are accustomed to. Jewish life is gonna look and feel and present so differently in 50 years, it's going to be astonishing. And so are we ready? And who will be the leaders and the voices? And I think artists are some of those leaders for us. And I think Jewish museums can be some of the leaders as well. Uh, Especially in partnership. I, I, I think the amazing thing about this being an art exhibition at a Jewish museum is that the messaging doesn't have to be as clear. It, it can be, it can be, you, you can, I, I, what I've sort of seen, or at least gathered from, you know, the curators since this exhibit opened, is that some of the ambiguity within the pieces has allowed conversations to happen that wouldn't have if this message of dissent was expressed in a more literal way. And I yeah. think it's allowed people who aren't necessarily familiar with issues of, of queerness or racial justice or you know, national politics it's, it's a lot of people who don't have as much familiarity or comfort talking about those things to realize that, that there is a vibrant and well-intentioned and essential community of, of Jews and mostly young Jews, but not all talking about these things. And, and it, I get the sense that it's really opened up some channels of communication that we didn't even know it would with, with Baltimore's Jewish community, which I think yeah. is really magical. And I'm going to give a shout out to the middle age Jews because I know them. They're, they're my crowd. And, and I think, you know, I can't, I certainly can't speak for everyone, but I think one of the things that kind of my age group of people working in Jewish culture that we see is we're not the youngest ones, but, and we're closer to the older ones, but yet we're, a lot of us are in the, we're the employed ones, right? Like we're the ones sitting in the decision-making seats. And I think we're like between the generations. And so I think, you know, the work has to come from multiple directions. We need those long invested in Jewish culture who might be older or longtime stakeholders 
to understand that the language and the fluency around Jewish culture is changing into a different language. Um, the people that are new to Jewish culture or younger, we want to amplify their voices, but also have them understand how the systems work so we can all find the right seats for the table, not just get the voice on the table, but build the architecture of the table anew. And that's where people like you come in as architects and artists also. And to think about systems design, to think about the flow of Jewish arts and culture. And we don't have to do things the same way we've always done them. And we don't have to throw them out either. I could say as, you know, a middle-aged person, I perfectly respect and understand some of the beauty of what has come before. Hey, we wouldn't be in museums if we didn't honor it and love it on some level, right? And we wouldn't employ in our artworks the Jewish past and the nagoon, right? And the stories from text, if there wasn't right. something there that was so beautiful. But we're all going to have to work together to bridge these divides. Yeah, I, I think that's seen in, in so many ways. Um, in, in, in this exhibit uh, is, is people really having a reverence and enthusiasm, not just a reverence, but like a, like an absolute love for uh, tradition. Um, and, and at the same time, really using those traditions to challenge tradition. <laughs> I think it, I mean, the, the Ark, you mentioned it looks like the, the B'nai Israel synagogue, uh, not the Ark, the, the altar in, in my, in my piece, you mentioned it looks like the B'nai Israel synagogue and that's no coincidence because like the curvature and the proportioning was literally just taken from that that bima, and I, I think that in in that way, but also with the good and, and like you mentioned, in, and in other ways, there's an interesting like enthusiasm, but also trying to show a dedication to what has come before in a, in like a really tangible way. Yep, what I see so many of the artists in this exhibit expressing is sometimes pain, but also an urgent cry out for take my enthusiasm, like. You know, I'm gener I'm a generative soul in this community and, you know, take my enthusiasm, take my talent, take my voice, like, let's do something with this. Right. And I, and so I think that dynamism and that potential is so exciting. And so now, you know, we need, we need to shape and we need to create new spaces and we need to create new containers. And I love that reference to the B'nai Israel synagogue, that Torah arc wall is Stunning. I mean, in the canon of American synagogue buildings, that wall, I mean, I think of Norfolk Street Synagogue um, on the Lower East Side, which has become a, um, a rental space. It's stunning. It's gorgeous. It's um, similar in its architectural vintage and its internal motifery. But, um, you know, that surviving Torah arc wall in B'nai Israel is stunning. And and I, I don't know how many people in Baltimore have seen it. Right. Yeah. And um, there's the, those synagogue and the Lloyd Street Synagogue is the third oldest surviving synagogue in the country. That's phenomenal. And we yeah. you can go in it and you could use it and we can we can use that space. We could bring it to life. Melissa, I want to ask you something. You invited the people experiencing Daniel's piece to think about this question. How do we navigate a culture that is built on both tradition and dissonance? This is something that I think has been coming up a lot when we've been putting on the, the fence exhibit is this tension. And I think that it plays out a little bit in some of these age dynamics, too, that you're naming, especially with people who may have for many years expected a Jewish museum to do one thing and then seeing it do something 
something different. And I think that that tension between tradition and dissonance is something we were really playing with here in the Jewish Museum of Maryland in this exhibit. So I wanted to see if you could talk about that tension and how you think Daniel's work responds to it. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about it a lot here in this conversation, but one of the things I see happening and it's playing out very publicly is the great fight for who will tell our stories, right? I mean, I think about the 1619 project in the New York Times and how it recenters the American narrative um, around slavery from the very beginning. The public reshaping of the narrative is what's at stake here and for artists and Jewish museums and Jewish culture. And in a way, um, we became very comfortable with the 20th century narrative of Okay, and this this reflects a lot of culturally specific identity museums of like, okay, things weren't great in the homeland or before, and then we came, we blended in, we retained some of our traditions, and we contributed back to society. And that meta-narrative has kind of echoed throughout identity-specific museums for many, many decades. And I think what's what's at stake here is to what extent are we going to disrupt that narrative? On the one hand, there's a lot we missed in the 20th century, a lot. And as I mentioned, the 21st century is, is going to not resemble the 21st century. At the same time, accommodating dissonance is really tricky. And I also sometimes see the push coming very hard. Um, and I also think that, that sometimes there's retaliation in dissonance. And I, I think we we have to be a little bit careful with each other that um, that that there's a lot to reconstruct here and to reassemble, but it's a it's a way of taking um, the best of what's come before and incorporating um, the, the best and the unknown about the present, um, because there's things we're just not going to understand yet. And we're just figuring it out as we go. And so um, I think it really needs to be a two-way flow because, you know, if we just pull apart what's come before, I think there's going to be a lot lost. Uh, Daniel, I wonder if you have anything to say about that, because I, I think that your work really deals a lot in tradition, but tries to respond to the current political moment that we're in. Like, for example, the music that is part of this installation that's broadcast over a radio that is something that we uh, recorded together in the courtyard. Can you talk about those kind of traditional elements like a nigun and, you know, some of the musical traditions that you're part of and, yeah, your relationship to that kind of tradition? Well, I think one big point of Jewish influence for me is just growing up reconstructionist with this ethos that like tradition has a vote but not a veto but I think my, my real connection to to tradition comes from get, getting to grow up in the um the klezmer world and and the world of the Yiddish revival and I've been going to like these different klezcam klez Canada since I was maybe five you know not every year but but like this has really been a community for me and it's where I started to understand the both the spiritually transcendent but also the kind of um politically active role of of nigunim of of these melodies that are sometimes wordless and sometimes have words and and really come out of the early hasidic tradition and so the nigun that is sung in the courtyard is is this one called kolbayar which i learned from uh rabbi Shlui dresner at at Klez canada and 
it it has these really interesting lyrics where this rabbi is wandering through, or the 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 Rebbe, um, the Balsham Tov, is is wandering through a, a forest and hears this cry through the trees, and it's of this father who metaphorically resembles God, represents God. And and the father says, Children, children, you know, why why won't you come home? Please come home, like you've forsaken me. Do you forget me? I'm in pain without you. This goes on for a few verses in Yiddish and, and Hebrew and Russian. And then the the, the Rebbe answers back, you know, we would come home, but a guard stands at the door. The more I learn about Jewish history, the more I understand that there has always been a struggle with authority. There has always been a, a schisming. Um, and oftentimes, like, the, the real growth in spirituality or politics comes from that tension between what is pre-existing and what people would like to, to turn that into. And you know, it's ambiguous uh, as to what this song means. I mean, some people would say that it that the guard standing at the door is the really kind of uh, restrictive Jewish laws of the um, of, of the Vilna Gaon, right? That existed at that time, or they might say that the guard at the door is is the I guess at this time the Ottoman Empire that is controlling the land of Israel. But I I think that the way I'd like to read it is that. The, the guard standing at the door is the kind of like gatekeeping that exists around Jewish spirituality. And that in order to come closer to Jewishness or keep being Jews, we really have to like leave that behind and then look at it from the outside, um, which is why the, the altar is outside the, the museum, outside the synagogue. But there's this funny irony because it's still in the courtyard and it's still very much a part of that community, which I think is in a way the reason it gets to start a conversation. So we kind of wrap up here in a minute, but I want to ask each of you uh, one more question. Uh, Melissa, are there any lessons from offense around the Torah that you think others can learn from? And where do you see this exhibit fitting into the world of Jewish museums and the ecosystem of Jewish culture today? I'm really excited about the implications of this exhibition. It, it really took a different approach in its development that a lot of practitioners are talking about, but that not all of which have ripened yet across the field of Jewish museums. I loved that there was a um, committee process. Leora was brilliant in her curation of this show um, and really worked tightly with the vision of the, the museum and its direction, and also brought on a whole team of people to make decisions along the way um, with a really diverse panel of people looking at the art, talking about it. I could say that one of the most exciting Zoom meetings I had all year was talking with the group about these pieces. And, and I was surprised by that. I was delighted. I thought it would kind of be easy of like, oh, we like this one, we like that one, great, great, great. But the conversations that it sparked were fascinating and have really stuck with me because I think when you get people thinking about the work, and thinking about it together, you come to a very different outcome than you would if you were going solo. So I think the collaborative process was really fascinating. I think um, the fact that the labels were written by different authors really is, is fresh in its approach. I think that um, hopefully the voices and intentions of the artists come through and are given a lot of primacy in the overall exhibition narrative. The overarching theme is bold. The range of artists and viewpoints is broad. 
And so, you know, I really can't wait to see how, how this sparks other types of exhibits such as this across the field of Jewish museums. I think a lot of colleagues are watching this project and, and I think they're really eager to try some of these things. Daniel, same question to you. Are there any lessons you learned from working on a fence around the Torah that you think could be valuable to other artists, curators, and people involved in the arts or in Jewish cultural institutions? I think I think a lesson would be that people are, especially people of different generations than me, like people kind of across a generational, maybe not just generations, people, people who have different Jewish experiences than me, when prompted, just as understanding and excited about the idea of forming community around dissent. And I guess the lesson there is to, is to be open to that. And that participatory art within a Jewish space can bring a lot of things to the surface that really are important. And, you know, in, in the workshop that we had where people were making these, these things, there were, there were people who kind of represented exactly what I imagined and what I would have represented myself. But then a lot of things that uh, that I would never have expected, but really allowed them to um, engage in the overall like uh, goals of of the work. And the lesson is to sort of find a a mechanism for creating that openness and engagement. And not letting it be anything, right? But like, how do you give people just enough of a prompt and a start and a and a sense of a safe place to express themselves? How, how, how do you do that, but also not make it too, you know, prompted or like you're sort of looking for a very specific answer? And and so, I think in some ways that pe- the piece was successful. In other ways, I, I probably could have. I don't know. I, I think the piece was surprisingly successful, actually, in because I, I didn't necessarily know that it would spark so much dialogue. That's Daniel Turetsky. Daniel Turetsky is an artist and an architectural designer based in Brooklyn. His mixed media installation, We Would Come Home But You've Locked the Door, is featured in a fence around the Torah. Daniel Turetsky, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. I've also been speaking to Melissa Martins Yeverbaum. She's the executive director of the Council of American Jewish Museums and was on the curatorial panel for Offense Around the Torah. She also used to work here at the Jewish Museum of Maryland from 1997 to 2007. Thank you, Melissa, for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much for listening to Disloyal. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and we'd love to hear your feedback. Our email address is disloyal at jewishmuseummd.org. You can follow us on Twitter at jewishmuseummd or on Instagram at jewishmuseum underscore md. And if you're in Baltimore, come visit. Go to jewishmuseummd.org for more information and to become a member if you're interested in supporting content like this podcast. Visit offensearoundthetorah.com to check out our latest art exhibit. Disloyal is a production of the Jewish Museum of Maryland and is produced and hosted by me, Mark Gunnery, with production assistance from Naomi Weintraub, the Jewish Museum of Maryland's community artist in residence. Our executive director is Saul Davis. You can subscribe to Disloyal wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes each Friday. Until next time, take care.